This is Current Yield Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air, and I am Jim Grant, and with me, as always, is uh, Eric Whitehead, our engineer, and Evan Lorenz, the great deputy editor of grants. Today, uh, we have um, uh, not just ourselves, uh, but we also have a, a, one of the, uh, the co-portfolio managers, I think there are two of you, um, uh, Charles L. Norton, uh, who comes to us via telephone. From I think Dallas, Charles is that? Uh, that's right. That's yeah. right. So welcome. And, Thank uh, you. And what Charles does for a living is to uh, buy uh, stocks that are simply uninvestable according to the dogmas of uh, ESG and uh, uh, SRI. ESG means whatever. It means uh, ever so good or something. <laughs> Environmental, yeah. social, and governance. Ah. And RSI is the, it's like, um, or SRI, you say it like Sri Lanka, except what it means is uh, socially responsible investing. And I, I, I'm not going to speak for uh, Charles Norton. I suspect that he is an upstanding citizen. I, I suspect uh, strongly that he has no greater urge to pollute the earth than the average mortal on Wall Street. Or, and I suspect that he is in favor of uh, good citizenship and uh, also good governance. Is that, are those conjectures correct, Charles? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But nonetheless, Charles is the uh, co-portfolio manager of, of a fund that used to be called Vice, but in an upgrade uh, in area addition and uh, also a, a slight tweak in marketing, it's now it's now called something else. It's called um, well the Vidium, Vidium Global Fund. So Vidium yes. is is uh, what does that mean? It's Latin for Vice. <laughs> so that's a nom- nominative case, isn't it? Well, yeah. you know. Uh, right. Okay. So, the, the, so it had been it had been the Vice Fund. Now it is the Vidium Fund. But tell us what it does. So we invest in four core sectors, which are tobacco, alcoholic beverages, casino gaming, and aerospace and defense. And the fund has been around a long time, and so we've you know we've continued to have the same focus we always have. We have to invest 80% in those four core sectors, and with the other 20%, we can invest in other things. So it's uh, it's Apple and Facebook plus the other stocks. No, I was just kidding. <laughs> I, was, I was just assuming. Uh, no, uh, not at all. Not at all. I mean, well, we, well, we Facebook purposely, was advice, wouldn't it? Uh, well, that's, I mean, that's a whole <laughs> conversation we could have is that there's a very gray area. Um, and what is socially acceptable for some is not for others. I mean, you could put McDonald's in there. You could put Coca-Cola in there. You could put Starbucks. So, you know, it's, it's a very gray area. We don't own any of those stocks, by the way. We're focused right now pretty much exclusively on, on our four core sectors with the addition of one other name in the portfolio as well. But in that other area, we're still going to stay sort of true to the theme and invest in high quality companies where we see opportunity that just happen to be sort of socially controversial. So this is is not an anti-sanctimony fund. This is a value fund. You are on the lookout for good businesses trading uh, with a margin of safety, and that margin of safety is owing to their controversial nature in this day and age, correct? Exactly. Very well said. Um, We're not the anti-ESG fund at all. Um, That makes no sense. But there is a whole body of academic research that suggests that because trillions and trillions of dollars are shunning these investments, there's a value opportunity there. And these are high-quality companies. I read something extraordinary. Sorry, sorry, Charles, please. No, I I was just going to say these are high-quality companies, and these sectors have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, you know, so it's a very serious investment strategy. Um, It's not anti-ESG or anything like that. So this is, in fact, uh, some of these industries go back to Roman times. 
hence the uh, a posit rebranding as uh, that's the, right um, in the nominative right. case of course hey uh, that's right have you considered branching out into energy, which seems to me to be a kind of a, a nose ahead of tobacco and general detestation. <laughs> well, it's funny. I mean, we're looking at that in, in the sort of other category that's not in those four core sectors. We can put things in there like energy. We have a, a play on nuclear power in there right now because we see a huge opportunity there and nuclear energy is sort of frowned upon as well. But we might have other things like energy drinks or video games, GMOs, things of that nature, where we see actual investment merit, but some investors might take, take uh, objection to it for social reasons. How long has the fund been around? 17, 17 or yeah, 17 or 18 years. And I see that over that span, the 17 or 18 years, you have outperformed. What is it? The uh, uh, there's a is it all the MSCI World, All uh, World Index? Yeah, yeah, by yeah. a lot, right? It's, it's, yeah. yeah. It's, mm -hmm. So so the, so the the idea that that there are systematic mispricings on account of embedded social attitudes actually is bearing fruit in result. Absolutely. I mean, I think our long-term track record can attest to that. How does the valuation of stocks that, I mean, they may not be anti-ESG, but they don't seem to tick any boxes today. How do those valuations compare to the general market today? Like, how, how big a discount are people placing on stocks that make them feel slightly uncomfortable? I would say a pretty big discount. I mean, there's some tobacco stocks trading sub 10 times earnings. If you go back and look since the creation of the S&P, some tobacco names have been some of the all-time best performers. They've been through class action lawsuits and, you know, they've been through multiple things where you would think it would be the demise of the industry and yet the stocks have performed very well. So the valuations in certain areas obviously are, are more extended, but there are really good value opportunities we see in our in our names. And then one other thing I would point out is that the U.S. markets have dramatically outperformed international markets, and we do have a global focus. So right now we have about 44% of the fund in international names. And so there's even greater value opportunities, we think, in companies outside the U.S. Well, that is a favorite theme of Evan Lorenz, who we'll talk about in just a moment. And Evan's name reminds me of Brands Interest Rate Observer, which is a sponsor of this podcast. What we try to do is to uh, anticipate the future in the interest of helping our readers do better. And uh, we fully realize how difficult this is. I mean, the future is a closed book, let us face it. But we can observe uh, with a little knowledge of the past and with a, a detached and disinterested view of current events, we can try to I don't know, to try to handicap the likelihood of things happening. We can see which way the odds are stacked. And we try to do this every two weeks. The grass comes out every other Wednesday online, and um, it's, uh, it's, it's fabulous. Now, um, before going much further, I want, to, I want to thank three of our podcast listeners who have recently become that most sainted person in the realm of grants, that is the fully paid up subscriber. That would be Ryan Benincasa and James Sherman and John Ralphs. Thank you. And what might these discerning readers find in grants? Well, I'm going to give you a quick tour of the current issue. And uh, I want you to, and if you can imagine it's all true, that is to say the astonishing breadth and erudition and historical reference, all these things are facts. So the front page begins with gale force liquidity. 
And uh, I'm going to read the first paragraph. By one man's reckoning, the six-month gust of Federal Reserve accommodation is the strongest since the fall of Lehman Brothers in 2008, and before that, the attacks of September 11th. And this is accompanied by one of Hank Blaustein's magnificent sketches, and uh, it is the picture of a kind of an Advil bottle, except it's labeled a QE, is this pain reliever, fast-acting QE, a pain reliever and wealth enhancer. The expiration date is never. And uh, let's see, the directions are for treatment of uh, coronavirus, uh, depression, recession, bear markets, unemployment, uh, debt contagion, deflation, anxiety, eco-anxiety, and political risk. Take as directed. And then we come to America, the overvalued, and we, we recite data showing that American equities are the most highly valued by so many different criteria, not least by their weight in the world's overall equity capitalization. Uh, to us, it rather resembles Japan in 1989 at least with respect to how the world sees us, that we're pretty swell, maybe too swell. And the third item I want to mention to you, these are all substantial length essays. We believe in long-form journals and none of the snackable bites of content that Facebook likes so well. It's called Grand Tour of Junk. And here's the way this begins. The lowest interest rates, the most accommodating Fed, the shortest junk bond durations, the highest corporate leverage, and the longest business expansion frame the value proposition for junk bonds and the speculative-grade tradable bank debt-style leverage loans. Hold on to your hats is the investment conclusion of the analysis to follow. So, uh, yeah, there you have it. I mean, we do our best. At we, this is my life's work, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, I want you to partake of it. And uh, we're in year 37. And I don't know, Eric, what do you think? Another 25 years? Yeah, that's, that's the plan. So um, please uh, subscribe. It's as simple as that, right? This is not a complicated tri possibility, a transaction. It's just uh, go online to Grant's Interest Rate Observer and subscribe to the damn publication. So thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. If you actually look at the U.S. stocks as a proportion of developed world stocks, they've actually never been higher. Today, U.S. stocks using the MSCI indexes foot to something like 64% of the entire market cap of developed nation stocks, whereas the U.S. GDP as a percent of developed nations is only closer to 44%. This is higher than it was in the dot-com era. It was higher than it was during the mortgage crisis. U.S. stocks, if they seem like they're the world-beating index in the world, they are. They've never been higher, stronger, or bigger. So, Charles, does that uh, constitute uh, kind of a standing invitation for you to venture outside these shores? Yeah. And actually, I saw some data yesterday that suggests the U.S. relative to the rest of the world is at a 100-year extreme. So we are on the lookout for good opportunities around the world. Um, in fact, the fund historically had about 30 to 35 percent international exposure. And we've recently uh, dialed that up and by prospectus said we were going to invest 40% or more in international stocks. So I, I think it couldn't come at a better time. Altria reported uh, a week or 10 days ago, and uh, the fall off in volumes was kind of alarming, or at least was greater than the market was expecting. And uh, the write-off of uh, value in Juul was a little bit greater than the market, from memory, I think greater than the market was expecting. Uh, is Altria one of your names, and how do you, what do you think about it? It is. It's a smaller name relative to our other international tobacco names. And um, I think that reflects sort of our outlook on it. You know, we think they're well positioned, but the U.S. regulatory environment is definitely tough, but it seems to be getting better. Um, and even though volumes what, what have dropped off. What way well, are they getting better? Uh, there were some proposed regulations on potential nicotine caps and menthol cigarette being banned that the FDA has recently backed off of. Ah. 
Um, also, a lot of the headline noise around vaping has seems to have gone away. And there's um, a deadline in May for tobacco companies in the U.S. to get a pre-market tobacco application to stay on the shelves. And so we think that that will bode well for the incumbents and the sort of big tobacco players and, and get a lot of the sort of nichier products off the shelves. But globally, um, we're seeing a big opportunity really in reduced risk products. And, you know, which, which e might what? Oh. like e-cigarette um, is one of those. There's also a category called heat, not burn, um, which uh, is, is, is coming to the U.S. with Altria and in partnership with Phil Morris. And then there's a, a small but very fast growing category of nicotine pouches that don't even have tobacco in them. So we think this shift to these reduced risk products is um, very positive, not just for public health, but for the whole industry, you know, this transition out of cigarettes into less harmful products, we think will be very good for the industry and for the public health. I've got to say that it's sounding as if uh, your fund is veering dangerously close to the ESG stuff. Well, I mean, it's funny you say that because you go through some of our names and they're actually very good stewards and very good corporate citizens. Some are in, you know, the Dow Jones Sustainability Index. They all have a, a major focus on natural resource conservatism and things like community engagement programs and charitable giving. And so, again, there's a very fine line. And a lot of our names are, are very good citizens and do very well on the E and the G, but, you know, maybe it's on the S that um, people take issue with, and that's that's fine by us. Have you ever thought about running an ESG vice fund? And, and the reason I ask is there was a study out a couple months ago saying the single best thing we can all do for the environment is stop having kids. Um, so if you have stocks like tobacco, which maybe are not good for an individual's health, um, <laughs> but don't harm the environment, it, it might actually be marketable as ESG. Yeah, I, I mean, we... <laughs> We we haven't really thought about that. I mean, we're really. You can take really that for the marketing on. department, Charles. You can take yeah, that. For the exactly. Exactly. Okay, I, I have a serious question. All right, uh, every good investor. Uh, I know you guys start at the top down, but you certainly work from the bottom up once you uh, isolate a, a good business. You go and kick some tires, right? So I'm visualizing the two of you uh, spending a weekend of due diligence at Charles L. Norton and Jeffrey W. Helrick, co-portfolio managers of the Michigan <laughs> Global Fund. And I'm thinking in my mind's eye, the two of you are getting into a limo in Las Vegas and going from casino to casino. I'm, see, so, so uh, Jeffrey's a Harvard man, right? So I'm expecting perhaps you, Charles, as a Tulane fellow, might be the one chewing tobacco. But but isn't that isn't that kind of what happens when you go out and kick tires? That's funny. I mean, it is sort of a inside joke of when we go for a drink. It's due diligence. So That's so funny. yeah, the same thing here. It, it, it's it's <laughs> it's it's definitely a fun fun area to cover. We we really enjoy these. Factors. Can I ask you a question about uh, how you view the sources of returns? So you beat the market by a pretty wide margin over a pretty long time. Um, we tend to think of, a lot of people tend to think of flows as the biggest driver of returns right now, which is why so much money is going to the U.S., but not just the U.S., but to the top stocks. The top five stocks in the U.S. right now account for 18% of the S&P 500, which, according to uh, uh, Morgan Stanley, is an all-time high. So flows right. have definitely driven that, and flows out of vice stocks have made these stocks extraordinarily cheap. How do you view, I guess, like flows, valuation, and what actually drives return for I guess, good stocks doing um, a good job of managing capital? That's uh, a very good and sort of broad question. I mean, we we are obviously just sort of market-wide noticing 
you know, uh, the, the market seems to be driven more and more by non-fundamental factors, algorithmic trading, ETF flows, positioning of quant strategies. QE. We, we, exactly. Central bank-induced liquidity and what have you. And, you know, we, we really just try to focus on the fundamentals. You know, what are the trends driving our sectors and what companies stand to gain or lose? Within within those sort of high level trends. You know, Charles, it, it's I was examining some of the uh, documents that uh, you were kind of to best longer. Fabiano might have surfaced, and your AUM assets under management is something like 150 million at year end. That's right. Mm-hmm. So so that strikes me as less than a proverbial drop in the bucket, considering a the value proposition offered, and b the titanic flood of money into the uh, stuff that. Uh, you're not buying. Well, maybe that come to think. Maybe the second point is is not, after all, paradoxical. But I was in the presence of someone who spent a long time in the business uh, asset management, and she was telling me that ESG is the most powerful marketing magnet yet devised. She said that the money just floods in. Just call it ESG, and people, I don't know, they have eco anxiety or something. But the money just absolutely thunders into these things. So. Um, $150 million is, you know, it's a lot of money even when you say it fast, but still, it's not $15 billion or trillion. Right. So what's the problem, Charles? I mean, I, I, I'm do- well, we're doing I think... our best here on the podcast, but what, what is <laughs> the problem with, with, the, with the stock market? I think that, well, first of all, the name. Um, and we only changed the name in October. Um, it was, as you said, <laughs> called Vice Fund. And I, I honestly think that that name was a big turnoff to a lot of people, especially yes. – in this era of ESG, and it caused an immediate knee-jerk reaction, and honestly, people didn't take it seriously. And so we changed the name so that we could at least be given a chance to explain our strategy, because it is an an actual serious investment strategy that invests in some very um, high-quality sectors and companies and is global. And so we think that um, that that will help with time from a marketing standpoint, Um, and also just the market environment we're in. I mean, we have an international bias and a value bias, and the market right now is U.S. momentum. Um, But we see that as being cyclical and mean reverting. And eventually, we think that value and international markets will will outperform, and we think that that bodes well for our positioning. Well, in case uh, Vishium doesn't uh, catch on, there's a uh, Greek goddess of vice is called a kakaya. So okay. that's just for we'll the to... consideration next marketing meeting, you know, it's K-A-K-I-A. <laughs> if this doesn't work, maybe we'll try that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, the uh, – okay, I'm just this, this, ladies and gentlemen, this is not uh, the Vishium Fund talking. It's certainly not Charles Norton talking. It's, it's Jim Grant talking. I'm going to say that uh, the assault – uh, with spray paint only on the uh, the Paris office of BlackRock was was to me very telling because the little known fact, Devin, is that um, is that Larry Fink was actually in the Paris office. He was on his way to Rome for uh, a dress rehearsal for his beatification in the Catholic Church. They can make him a saint. Yeah. And um, anyway, I, I, if you ask me, which you have not, I would say uh, that this rush into green painted, sanctimonious ESG brand. Stuff is something to be sold short, and if you can't sell something short, say if you're constrained, why well, there is uh, there is this fine fund, the Vishium fund. Yeah, 
Uh, one you. last question for you. So, so also uh, today we, we heard news of one other thing. Uh, British Petroleum, or BP as it's now known, has yeah. said by 2015 they want to have zero carbon emissions from all of their activities, including extracting oil, burning that oil in cars, and everything through the value chain. How does it feel when you're looking at companies which optically look cheap, have decent dividend yields, but seem to be trying to abandon their core business in order to fit an investment category? Yeah, it's, you know, they're hearing all the you know, loud investors um, pounding the table that this is what needs to be done. And it's, you know, it does seem sort of shocking. It doesn't seem like that much CapEx is going to be going to- towards that in the near term, though. But, you know, it's today's day and age. is a, There's a new CEO there who is... Yeah, a week, um, a week old. That's right. I think. Who yeah. is... Uh, who is trying to uh, to do what the market wants him to do? So his last name is, is uh, I think, uh, Looney. <laughs> yeah, Looney, Mr. So, Looney. Yeah, um, I mean, we have we have no position in that, but I have been yep. looking at it. Okay, you know, uh, uh, this is another uh, slightly uh, non uh, Charles Norton non Vitium observation. So bear with me, Charles and uh, Evan. You have to listen because sure. uh, you know because I run the place. Okay, so um, uh, in the New York Post this morning, uh, there was a, there's a column, uh, Michael Goodwin, very interesting, I think, uh, provocative and, and just superb, all-around superb columnist for The Post. Um, uh, Charles, The Post, for your information, is the uh, New York tabloid that you must read. Uh, some oh, of the I, I, I know yeah. The oh, Post okay. well. You, yeah. Okay. I lived in New York so, for a uh, while. So uh, Goodwin was saying that, uh, apropos of Michael Bloomberg, he was saying that the uh, the trouble with uh, this tape that has come out from the Aspen Institute, where Bloomberg gave a talk in 2015, was saying that uh, um, he was defending uh, stop interrogate and frisk, whatever they call it. And, uh, you know, in typical Bloomberg, you know, blunt, kind of brutal fashion, he was laying out what was what it entailed and what was good about it. And then, of course, Michael comes out and, and not only disowns and somewhat uh, distorts the record of uh, this policy, but also apologizes for it wholesale. So Goodman was saying that uh, uh, what this proves is that, uh, uh, apropos of Michael Bloomberg's candidacy and his campaign and his bankroll, he was saying, quote, uh, money is no substitute for authenticity, period. I was thinking, you sure? (laughs) 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 Are you sure about that? And um, so in your line of work, your fund is absolutely authentic. I mean, uh, there's no, what would would be, Evan, what's the opposite of, uh, green wife when you're painting something vice i guess you'd you'd paint it red right <laughs> that's the the heart the harlot's color if you if you were a fake vision fund you would paint it red it would be called red painting right but right. you guys charles um, are not in the business of pretense you're not in the business of uh, of torturing uh, definitions and, and business lines of companies to satisfy some arbitrary social whim you are in the business of searching for value on the theory uh, that you, Mr. Investor or Miss Investor, can do what you like with your private life, but we are going to compound your money as best we can in the context of value and a margin of safety, right? 100% correct. Yeah. Uh, Jim, we All might right. want to hire you. We might want to hire you on, in, on our marketing team. Yeah, well, uh, I, <laughs> actually, I, am, I live a life of such purity. It would be seen as a, <laughs> as a great act of hypocrisy were I to be allied with you in public. No, but 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 seriously, you know, for investors that are looking for return, and we we consider it sort of defensive growth because you know half the the sectors we focus in are global staples, and so we think they'll be resilient. Um, there is sort of resilient demand for sure. It's been true through good times and bad for hundreds of years. Got to have so, vice. You got to have vice. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, re- listener of ours, Russell Panoyer. 
uh, very loyal listener to this podcast, said the other day that he finds them too short. But, you know, Russell, I mean, we don't just vapor about things. We don't just veer off to talking about making up stories about Larry Fink. We don't do anything like we have. We have serious conversations about buying low, selling high and uh, margins of safety and, and how bad the Fed is. Right, Evan? We don't. Uh, so yeah. this, this podcast is now going to come to an end. I don't, Russell, you have to. Russell, the problem is the podcast doesn't last long enough when you're running. Just just pick up the pace. Just run five minute miles rather than six minute miles <laughs> and you're long enough. So, Charles, thank you. This has been uh, terrific. Thanks. And please thank uh, your partner, uh, Jeffrey Helrick, who, by the way, looks terrific in a bow tie. I, I, I admire that in a man. Yeah, he's got your style. Yeah. And uh, Evan, thank you. Uh, Eric Whitehead, ditto. And uh, until next time, ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. See you soon. Mm-hmm.